I want to tell you a little story. My wife and I are coming up on our 33rd, got to make sure you get that right, anniversary. So uh, 34 years ago in the summer, when we were getting serious, I thought I should go meet this familia that I've heard about. And being raised Irish, you know, I really hadn't encountered that culture before. In fact, most of what I knew about the Italian culture came from the movie The Godfather. And, uh, you know, I actually, my father-in-law's name is actually Vito, but I thought for the first five years his name was Don Vito. So it's kind of scary. But anyways, uh, my two favorite foods have always been Mexican and Italian. And uh, it's really cool because when you have the foods you love, you enjoy them. But how many of you would agree, though, that there's restaurant food and then there's grandma's food? And these little ladies that spoke about five words of Italian, literally, would come up, look at me. I probably weighed about 150, 160 pounds. They'd grab me by the cheek, not joking here, and say, you come to my house. I'm on a feed of you. I was like a mission field for them to get me fat. You know, it's like, and there, I was like in heaven. Their food was like off the hook, off the chain, whatever you want to say. It was amazing. It was that Italian food at another level. And then I found out I don't like all Italian food. And here's how I found out. Lori has had a grandpa named Grandpa Poro, super sweet guy, and uh, he could never say my name, Graham. He always called me Krem. So he said, Krem, you got to try this. And so he's loading my plate, and he puts this leafy substance on there, which he called arapa. If you know what arapa is, could you see me after the service? Because I still don't know what I ate. But when I stuck that in my mouth and started chewing, he's watching me, and I'm noticing none of the other, other people my age have it on their plates. And they're all kind of like smirking, and I'm like, what's up? Till I start chewing, and then I'm like, oh my gosh. If he wasn't staring at me right now, I would like spit this out right on the plate. Just spit it out. It was the most bitter tasting thing that I've ever had. I still want to know what it is, but it was bitter. And how many of you realize that sometimes the things that happen to us in life you know, like when people lie to us, when they cheat on us, when they break our trust, when they betray us, when they sin against us, that can leave a bitter taste in our mouth. And the, the meaning of bitterness in the Bible is a, a corrosive thing. It's like an acid that eats you up from the inside out. And here's the thing. Very often, the people who become bitter in life were not the people that perpetrated the offense. They were the victim, if you will. They were sinned against. But when bitterness comes into your heart, it destroys you and you become a destructive person. And that bitterness is something that will literally tether you and tie you to the past. Whenever that incident happened, you will literally be in a stuck place. You ever been stuck at an airport? Not pleasant because you got somewhere to be, but you can't get there when you're stuck. And God has this amazing purpose-filled life for you, but you can literally get stuck in that place of pain and wounding and bitterness and unforgiveness. And when you're stuck there, you can't reach out and embrace what God has for you right now. So we don't want to be in that place. But I want you to know if you are in a place right now where you're in that kind of pain, and you feel like, you just, I just want to get even with somebody. I, I want revenge. There is a way out. There's a way out. When I was 14 years old, my parents moved to a brand new home, just one city away. But it was at the foot of the Angeles Forest mountain range. And so literally from like here to that screen right there, 
I could look out of my backyard and it started up the mountain. Literally, we'd hike up the mountain. And so there were no fences and there, there was wildlife. There was coyotes, deer, jackrabbits, roadrunners. Yeah, roadrunners, BB, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, and we also had rattlesnakes. And rattlesnakes, you don't even have to see them to know they're there because when they shake that tail, you know it, baby, and you respect it. And so I remember my chore was to take the trash out. So I'm 14 years old. I pull up these trash cans early in the morning and I go to walk them out. And right there behind the trash can is a rattlesnake coiled up. And I'm like, this is not a good position for me to be in. But fortunately, it was early in the morning, so it was cool and they don't move good in the cold. And so like the manly 14-year-old that I was, I did what every manly macho 14-year-old would do. I cried out for my dad. Dad, help! And my dad comes running out, there's a rattlesnake here, and it's right by me, it's coiled up. He just took a shovel, beat that thing to death, you know. He just took its head off. I was like, yeah. Thanks, Dad. But a couple years later, I didn't get bit by the wildlife, but a couple years later, a young kid about 10 years old on a, on a challenge from an older kid tried to pick one of those rattlers up. And he got bit. And man, they rushed that kid to the hospital, because if you don't get treated, you die. And you know what they do? When you're bit by a rattler, they inject you with an antidote. And what that antidote does is it neutralizes the venom in your blood system so that you can live. Can I tell you something this morning? God has an antidote for bitterness. And that antidote is called forgiveness. That's what I want to look at. And I don't think you can look at forgiveness and understand it without understanding the power of the cross. And here's the main thought I want to leave you with today, and it's simply this. If you don't choose forgiveness, by default, you choose bitterness. There is no neutral place where you can say, well, I don't know, I'm thinking about forgiving. You know, I'm considering it, but I'm not, I'm not sure if I want to. So, now listen. By default, then, you're choosing bitterness. And that will destroy your life. So, Let's talk about the power of the cross. In movies, when we see the cross, it's like 15, 20 feet. We're looking way up in the air, but that's not reality. The Romans crucified people five to six feet off the ground because they wanted to be able to have you look right into the eyes of the person being crucified so you could see and feel that pain and that anguish. Because why? They wanted you to know as their subject that if you don't do what they say, this will be your fate. And on the day that Jesus Christ was crucified... The Romans were sending a message, but there was a far greater message being sent by a far greater kingdom on that day, and that's the kingdom of God. And I want you to know and understand that forgiveness and freedom from bitterness really comes because of the power of the cross. So let's look at that real quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says this, I know very well how foolish the message of the cross sounds to those who are on the road to destruction. But we who are being saved recognize this message as the very power of God. Now, I know that as a Christian, we have promises in the Bible that say when we call on the name of the Lord on that day, salvation comes, that he saves us, that he gives us what a new heart, a new spirit. It doesn't change our mind or appearance or how we think, but he gives us a new heart. We're forgiven and Literally, the power of the cross saves us on that day. But then it says that we're being saved. In other words, it sounds like it's this 
continuous process that's happening, that it's ongoing. Why? Because in this present world, there's a lot of stuff that wants to infect our lives. There's a lot of stuff that wants to trap us and hurt us and destroy us. And God has made a promise that when we believe in him, that he continuously delivers us from everything that tries to knock us off our horse, so to speak. And one of the things about the cross is we know that at the cross, we could say that we receive grace, we receive mercy. We encounter the love of God, which is the, the basis of the cross. God so loved the world. Why did he do what he did? Because he was absolutely in love with you. Gave up his son for you because he loved you. But one of the most amazing things we encounter at the cross is we encounter forgiveness. That all these sins and this debt that we have accumulated before God is suddenly in one moment that we place faith in what Jesus did. In one moment, that slate is wiped clean and we owe nothing from that moment forth. And that's an amazing thing that the cross does for us. But the cross releases forgiveness, but it was never meant to be a one-way street. It's supposed to flow to us and through us because Jesus taught us this way. When you pray, say, forgive us for our sins as we what? Forgive others who have sinned against us. See, when somebody inflicts pain on you physically or emotionally or otherwise, the Bible calls that being sinned against. Now, here's what I found out over the years. When we talk about something like forgiveness, a lot of people sitting here today might say, why is the responsibility all mine? What about the person who did that thing? Why do they get off the hook? Can I just tell you something? As we look at this today, you're going to find out they don't get off the hook. But this is for your benefit and for your freedom. So let's look at how bitterness enters into our hearts. It says in Ephesians 4.26, If you are angry... Don't sin by nursing your grudge. Don't let the sun go down with you still angry. Get over it quickly. So here's the thing. When you're angry, how many would agree that when you're angry, you will say things and do things that you otherwise wouldn't? Anybody there? All three of us in this room are agreeing that we would. <laughs> I can tell you this. I mean, as a holy man of God, pastor, preacher. I've been in fights with my wife where I said some words I thought I forgot. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm just keeping it real here for a second. Like so angry. I'm like, whoa, where did that come from? That's from the archives. I mean, get rid of that quick. You will say and do crazy things when you're angry. And James says in James 1:20 that the anger of a man doesn't produce anything good or the righteousness of God. It'll take you down a road to destruction that you don't want to be on. Anger is like a gateway drug. It opens your heart to bitterness. And so what does he say? He says, get rid of it quickly before the sun goes down. In other words, choose now. While it's still today to let the reason for that anger go. You're angry for a reason. It's not a sin to be angry, but it's a sin to act on it. It says, let it go out today because if you don't let it go today, today becomes tomorrow, which becomes next week, which becomes next month, next year. And listen, how many of you in here have met some 70, 80 year olds 
that have literally been bitter for decades. I have. I mean, crusty old people. You don't even want to be around them. Sorry, I'm not trying to offend anybody there. Forgive me. All right. Listen, for when you are angry, you give a mighty foothold to the devil. What? What is a foothold? It means you open the door. One translation says it this way. When you're angry and you sit on that anger and you let it boil in you, it says you give the devil a way to defeat you because he's looking to defeat you. But did you know you have to give him that access? The Bible says he's looking for someone to devour. Now, with a name like Graham, I've been called Graham Crackers many times in my life. But let me tell you something. I'm not edible to the devil unless I open the door. All right. Let's make that clear. (laughs) So what do we do? Ephesians 4, verse 31. Stop being bitter and angry and mad at others. What's he saying? Let it go. Let it go. Listen to this. Don't yell at one another. That means in public context. You ever been at that restaurant when that husband and wife are so angry they don't even care that you're there? They just go off on one another? Anybody ever been there? If not, just watch The Real Housewives. It happens every episode. Do you know what I mean? How about this? It says, or curse each other, or ever be rude. Now, to curse each other, that means that you've taken words, dipped them in bitterness, and it literally means there that you are using your words to destroy someone's reputation. He's saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Listen, when we allow unresolved anger and bitterness to sit in us, it eats us up from the inside out. It destroys our life. It robs us of our today and our tomorrow. I love this quote from Joyce Meyer. Listen to what she says. And this is a Selah, if you will, in the Bible. A moment to meditate on this thought here. She says, I know from personal experience how damaging it can be to live with bitterness and unforgiveness. I like to say it's like taking poison and hoping your enemy will die. Wow. Wow. They sinned against us. But if we don't choose forgiveness, that bitterness enters in. And now we're the one living in that pain, tethered to that moment in time and not able to embrace God's present moment for us. Verse 32 tells us how we overcome these things. It says, instead, be kind and merciful and forgive others just as God forgave you because of Christ. Be kind and merciful. Instead of being angry and bitter and mad, we're kind. We're merciful. We're forgiving. Why? Because we have experienced these things from God. Whatever we have received freely, we can also freely give it away. That's what the gospel teaches. So it's not always easy to forgive. I will say that. But I will also say this, that forgiveness gets complicated. And let me give you an illustration here. This is a, one of my crazy stories is, Joe Jr. would say. Um, I remember several years ago, I was closing out a Sunday morning sermon, and there was a guy in my church who was a stuntman and a martial artist, and he had brought a couple of his students with him that he'd been training. And uh, one of the students, they were in like the back row, he just started acting like real goofy and just kind of like, I don't know, he's like wigging out, best I could say. He was like tripping, you know what I mean? It was like, what is he doing? 
And my ushers are kind of like staring at me like, do you want us to take them? And I'm like, no, 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 let's just close this service. Let's get out of here. We don't need the disturbance. And so we end the service, and uh, this guy, next thing I know, I see this guy bolt past me. No kidding. Runs full speed. He runs right up onto our platform, and he's standing on our platform, and he's refusing to go. And the ushers are trying to talk to him. I had some LAPD guys there. They know how to handle these guys. They're trying to talk him down and, you know, real calmly. Now, unbeknownst to me, out in the lobby, apparently, he hadn't been taking his meds, we found out. That's what it was. But nobody knew anything about that. But unbeknownst to me, in the lobby, he had decided to spit on his instructor. Now, that's just a bad idea, period. You don't, you don't want to spit on anyone, but especially an expert in martial arts. So he's up there, and I'm like kind of watching this, and then up walks his instructor. Now, I didn't know that the guy had spit on him. He walks up to me, and he says, Pastor Graham, would you like me to um, take him out? And I'm thinking, yeah. You know, <laughs> of course, that makes sense. That's perfect, perfect sense because you brought him. Of course I want you to take him out, but let me show you the guy that I'm talking about that asked me that question to give you context. That's him on the set of Wild Hogs. You can watch him fight with Martin Lawrence, but this guy is the guy that asked me that. And in my brilliance, I said, yeah, take him out. He proceeds to walk up on, I watched this happen with him. He walks up, and I kid you not, he throws a vicious right hook just Bam! Just clocks him right on the jaw, pulls him into a Muay Thai clinch and starts going at him. And now I got these guys pulling him off. Anybody ever been there where somebody said something you thought you knew what they meant, but you figured out later on you were wrong? I think I was definitely wrong on that one. I missed that one by like a mile. Well, you know what? One of the reasons that some of us have so much trouble forgiving is because we think we know what it means when we really don't. And so today I want to try and clear that up for you because I think if you can see that this is for your benefit and you can see what it really means, hopefully you'll choose it today. And that's my hope, that you'll choose this today. Let's look at six things that forgiveness is. Number one, it's canceling a debt. The most basic meaning of forgiveness is debt cancellation. We all understand this term. When Jesus was on the cross, he said these words, it is finished that was a term that was used in the business market, which meant your debt was paid in full. And there's a parable that Jesus taught that we have accumulated this debt before God because of all the mistakes and sins we've made, a debt we could never repay in our lifetime. And so that parable teaches us that when someone sins against us, their debt in comparison to our debt is a small one and that we are to what? To forgive because we've been forgiven. So it is debt cancellation. Number two, Forgiveness is a decision and a process. Some of you are going through some things right now that aren't going to end tomorrow. You might be going through a divorce, a custody battle. You might be going through some stuff that takes a while to go through. And you need to know that sometimes forgiveness is a process. I remember going through something. It took me three years to go through this forgiveness process, but you have to choose it. And here's the key thing there. Choices lead, feelings follow. When you forgive, you are not always going to feel like forgiving. You are doing it as an act of your will and obedience to Jesus because he's asked you to. Not because you feel like it, but you choose it. And eventually what happens is 
by the grace of God, those feelings will catch up. But you can't let your feelings lead. You've got to choose it. So it's a process, and you need to know that it's a process. Number three, it's a gift for them. It releases them from your wrath, and it releases you from bitterness. Number four, it's genuinely wanting good for them. What does that mean? When you hear about something really terrible happening, you don't go, yes, they deserve that. No, what will happen is if you follow the scriptures and you do what God asks you to do, he'll have you what? Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who persecute you. Do good. Because our natural reaction is to what? When somebody hits me in the face, I don't want to turn the other cheek. I want to punch him back twice as hard. But God's saying, hey, you know what? We don't do that. We move in the opposite spirit. We go the opposite direction. And so that's how we overcome. And so we literally want good for them to happen. And again, this may take you time to get there, but I promise you, you'll get there. Number five, and this is a real big one. Let God avenge you. Can I just say something? If you were sitting out there today and you've been molested, you've been raped, you've had uh, people just do unspeakable things to you, you might be hearing all this and saying, you know what? But what about them? Listen, here's what God asks you to do. God says, listen, vengeance is mine. I, not you, will repay. So let me ask you something. Is that person, even if you forgive them, is that person really getting away with anything? No. We will give an account for every word spoken, for every action taken. We will give an account to the ultimate judge in heaven. They're not getting away with anything. But God says, take the need for justice. Because justice is a, is a cry for, some, for someone to right the wrong. And that's part of the meaning of justice, means to right the wrong. You want things to be made right, and God is saying, I am the God of justice. I will make this right but you let me deal with it. Listen, where I'm from in the Los Angeles area, we've had people get so mad on freeways that when someone cuts them off, they'll follow them down a ramp and kill them. How many think we're pretty lousy judges? God is saying, listen, can you trust me? Can you trust me to do this instead of you do it? And so what do we do? We take vengeance out of our hands and we give it to him. We say, God, this is your deal now. The last thing that it is, is it's removing the person's control of you. And this is a big deal. You can't control how someone else treats you, but you can control your response to their injustice. So listen to this quote by Booker T. Washington. I will never allow another man to control my life by allowing him to make me hate him. You, you know, so the bottom line is when you forgive, you've just removed control over your life. Now here's five things that it's not. Number one, it's not diminishing sin. It's not going into a denial mode and going, oh, that's no big deal. It's no big. Listen, if it's no big deal, then you don't need forgiveness. But if it was a big deal, then don't try to deny it. Don't try to diminish it. And if somebody comes and apologizes apologize to you, don't just say, oh, well, that's no big deal. No, just acknowledge it, man. This is how the kingdom of God is supposed to work. We're supposed to forgive one another because he forgave us. Number two, and this is another, I keep saying this all again. This is a big one. This is a big one. I wish I would have known this 20 years ago. But it is not a response to an apology. If you are waiting for an apology before you choose forgiveness, you might wait a lifetime. Because some of the people who hurt you the worst are never going to own it, never going to take responsibility for what they did to you. 
And if you're waiting for that moment, you'll wait forever. In fact, some of the people that hurt you the most are now dead and in the grave. So this is for your benefit. You can release it whether you have an apology or not. And number three, another biggie. It's not, forget, it's not forgetting. How many of you can help me finish this sentence out? Go ahead. There's, if you get it wrong, I will forgive you. I'm just letting you know that in advance. Ready? Help me out here. To forgive is to... Wrong. Bad theology. Where do we get this theology? Where do, we, where do we get these things? Well, we read the Bible and we see that God says, I will forgive your sins and I will remember them no more. Hey, well, God's forgotten our sins and if we're to forgive like he does, then we should forget too, right? Well, God still remembers your sins. He's omniscient. In fact, there are many sins of people who are in the Hall of Fame of Faith that are recorded in your Bible, which is an eternal book. What that really means is God is saying, I will, I choose to interact with you no longer on the basis of your sins, but I now choose to interact with you on the basis of what Christ has done. It doesn't mean he doesn't know about it. Joseph, one of the most amazing characters in the Bible who was betrayed by his brothers, sold as a slave, ends up in prison, falsely accused for rape, comes out, his firstborn child, he names him Manasseh. And Manasseh just means this, God has made me forget all my troubles and my father's household. I'm like, okay, that's pretty cool. God made you forget. That sounds possible. But yet I watched this same Joseph a few years later as he sees the dream God gave him when he was 18 years old, 17, 18 years old, come to pass. His brothers bow before him. He hears them talk about what they'd done to him. And I watch him emotionally break several times and leave the room because he doesn't want them to see how hard he's crying. My, my friends, he remembered everything. Your brain has those memories stored in them. If you think that you haven't forgiven because you can still remember, you're never going to get there. You have to come to that place that God brought Joseph where essentially you can look at that old scar, but you just don't feel the pain from it anymore. That's how that works. Hang in there. We're almost there. Forgiveness, number four, isn't trust. Just because I forgive you doesn't mean I have to trust you. Why? Because trust is gained slowly and lost quickly. If I have a child that's a drug addict and every time they come to my house, I'm missing jewelry and money and everything else, I will forgive them, but I will also change the locks on my door. I heard this lady went to a pastor, and this is a true story. Not so long ago, I went to her pastor and said, you know, when I was growing up, my, my father molested me, but I became a Christian and I forgave him. And because I forgave him, I wanted him to be part of our life, and so I let him watch my kids and babysit my kids, and I found out he's molested them too. Guys, two separate issues here. Forgiveness and trust, two separate issues. Don't confuse them. And then the last one. It's not reconciliation. You can forgive some people, and some people may no longer be your friend. Yeah. Forgiveness and reconciliation, two separate topics, because reconciliation means that two people are going to come together, 
they're both going to come in an attitude of mercy and humility, and they're going to they're going to own their part of the deal, and they're going to be repentant about it so that they can get things right. And repentance is just a biblical term that means if you're going one way, repentance means you just did an about face and you started going another direction. So in that relationship, you get it straightened out and you start taking it the right direction. Now that's possible, but I can tell you this, not everyone wants that. But that's not forgiveness. So you can choose to forgive. I want to just close today with a story um, it came out of a book that I read several years ago. This is one of the most amazing authors I've ever read from. She also wrote Seabiscuit, but she took seven years to write the story called Unbroken. It's the life story of Louis Zamperini. Louis Zamperini was the son of Italian immigrants and uh, lived in Torrance, California, right outside of Los Angeles. Um, picked on a lot, but he grew up, became a, a great runner, ran the mile, and as an 18-year-old, he was so good that he went to the Olympics in Germany in 1936. He was actually the roommate of Jesse Owens. And he came back and he started running track at USC, fight on. Are there any other USC fans? I'm still looking for one. I've got one USC fan, my son. The rest of you are Buckeyes. So he ran track at USC, and he was the fastest miler in the world and was pegged to win the gold medal in 1940, but something called World War II happened and it derailed that. It was part of a bomber crew. The plane went down in the ocean. He and another man survived a 47 or 48 day drift that went over 2,000 miles with no food or water, set a record, picked up half, he'd lost half his body weight, picked up by a Japanese destroyer and thrown into a prison camp. They saw he was Olympian, tried to turn him for propaganda reasons when he wouldn't turn. They put him in to this camp, run by a guard nicknamed the Bird, who would become number seven on the most wanted war criminal list after the war was over, Mitsuhiro Watanabe. And he knew who he was. And this was a man with a complex. Even the other guards hated him. And he beat Louis mercilessly. He made it his mission to personally break this man. I'll tell you just one of the examples of that beating. He had the guards hold Louis by his arms. You can see it in the movie Unbroken, directed by Angelina Jolie. He had the guards hold, hold his arms out by his side. They lined up 220 of these men, and they said, we want you to hit this man in the face as hard as you can. He wasn't even a big man. And the first two guys didn't want to hit their officer, and so they pulled their punches, and they were beaten severely. So Louis called out and said, hit me as hard as you can. Man, what a story. And you watch the movie and you see this. They pulverize his face, 218 blows to this man's face, in and out of consciousness, weeks just for the distorted face to even be seen again. No pain meds. That's just one punishment. Just one. This man, by the grace of God, survives. Come back. He comes back to America. They put him on a speaking tour. And to calm his nerves, he starts drinking. But also every night, he wakes up with nightmares, so he tries to drink himself to sleep, becomes a raging alcoholic, gets married, has a kid. You know that's not going well. Him and his wife decide to divorce, and she had come back from the East Coast to collect her belongings in their apartment, and while she was collecting her belongings, a lady in that complex did what many of you have done with your friends. She said, do you want to come to church? In her case, she said, do you want to come to a Billy Graham meeting? And so she went, 
she was hurting too. And she gave her life to Jesus Christ and she encountered the power of the cross and then she begged Louis to come. He came a couple of times, but he walked out angry. But he came back one last time and he was starting to walk out and he was real angry. And he remembered a vow he made on the raft when he was drifting for 40 day, 47 days lost at sea. God, if you let me live, I'll do what you want. And he stopped in his tracks, he turned around, he went down and he prayed to receive Christ. That night he went to sleep for the first time in years. He lived to be, I think, 95 or 96, and he never had another nightmare. God radically delivered him, but he also realized that if he was going to move on in life, he needed to make a choice to forgive those who'd made his life a living hell. And so, in 1998, he was asked to be part of the relay that carried the Olympic torch to the Winter Games in Japan in 1998, and so he accepted a 60 Minutes reporter knew who he was, knew his story, did some research and found the man that they thought was dead called the bird. And he asked the bird, he said, would you like to meet with Louie? And he said, no, I don't want to meet him. And then he asked Louie, and he said, Louie, would you like to write him a letter? And Louie said, yes, I would. And by the way, when he interviewed with this reporter, he was completely, all these years later, he was completely unrepentant about anything he'd done to any prisoner. This morning, I want to read that letter to you. In fact, actually, I'm going to have Louis, the late Louis Zamperini, I'm going to have him read the letter that he wrote to Mitsuhiro for you. When you went back to Japan, you, you shared the gospel with some of the very guards that mistreated you, and you wanted to meet the bird, but you were told the bird was dead. He wasn't, but you didn't know that at the no, time. But you wrote him a letter. Do you have that letter with you? I, I, yeah, I brought it with me. This is the letter that Louis wrote to the bird. You want me to read it? Yo, would you okay. read it, please? <laughs> okay. This is to Matsushiro Watanabe. As a result of my prisoner of war experience under your unwarranted and original punishment, my post-war life became a nightmare. I, it was not so much due to the pain and suffering as it was to the tension of stress and humiliation that caused me to hate with a vengeance. Under your discipline, my rights not only as a prisoner but also as a human being were stripped from me. It was a struggle to maintain enough dignity and hope to live under the war's end. The post-war nightmares caused my life to crumble, but thanks to a confrontation with God through the evangelist Billy Graham, I committed my life to Christ. Love replaced the hate I had for you, and Christ even said, forgive your enemies and pray for them. As you probably know, I returned to Japan in 1952 and was graciously allowed to address all the Japanese war criminals at Tsugamo Prison. I asked them about you and was told that you probably had committed harakiri, which I was sad to hear. At that moment, like the others, I also forgave you, and now I would hope that you would also become a Christian. Amen. That's uh, forgiveness. If you don't choose forgiveness by default, you're choosing bitterness. Let's pray. You're here today. I've just, even some of the stories I've heard this weekend um, from the people that have been here, some of you are in a place right now where this is stuff that, you know, you're ready to let it go. You just feel God is saying, hey, it's time for you to, it's time for you to experience freedom and to just let, let that thing go. Let that person go. Just just let it go. Forgive. Choose that today. 
Because I believe that God will heal you and heal your heart if you choose that. So if you're here today and you're saying, you know what, I'm ready, Pastor, I'm ready to, to let that sin go. I'm ready to forgive others as Christ has forgiven me. Then I want you to just pray this simple prayer with me. And we're going to let that, that offense, and maybe it was a whole group of people, maybe, who knows, I don't know. Whoever it was, just picture them in your mind right now. You know who they are. You know what they did. Let's make a choice to forgive. If you want to do that, just pray this prayer with me. Just say, Father, only you understand how much I've been hurt by these people. I don't want to carry this pain for another second. I don't want to be a bitter person. But I need your grace and the power of the cross to release my hurt and to forgive those who've hurt me. I'm choosing today to forgive them the way you've forgiven me. Every time the memory of what they did comes back to my mind, please remind me that their debt is canceled. Heal my heart with your grace in Jesus' name. I want to just say this, the greatest miracle that can ever happen is not just our forgiveness of others, but to be forgiven ourselves. And the place where we encounter forgiveness is at the cross of Jesus Christ because he died expressly so that God would no longer count our sins against us. When we come to that place, we acknowledge him as the son of God who died for our sins, who rose from the dead. The Bible says, that salvation comes into our life. The Bible also says today is the day of salvation. The moment you call on Him, He'll come and save you. If you never, at any point that you can remember, made a decision to not only believe in Christ, but to call out to Him and ask Him to be the Lord of your life, to to make that decision to say, Lord, I want to follow you. I want to follow you. I want to follow your leadership in my life from this moment forth. I want to know you and say these words with me. Church, help me out. Just say, Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. Thank you that you died for me on the cross. I ask you to forgive me. I believe in your death. I believe my sins have now been forgiven. Right now, I give you my guilt and shame. I accept you as my Savior. I believe that you rose from the dead, that you're alive today. Please come into my life now and help me to live the rest of my life with you and for you. 